0: The German pastor, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, taught theology at the University of Berlin from 1931 to 1933, and he made quite an impression on his students. Many of them commented that no one taught the Bible like Bonhoeffer. One of his students was a woman named Inge Karding, who later shared some of her reflections, and I printed this quote at the beginning of your order of worship. She said that Bonhoeffer would often tell the students, when you read the Bible, you must think that here and now, God is speaking with me. Bonhoeffer wasn't as abstract as the Greek teachers and all the others. Rather, from the very beginning, he taught us that we had to read the Bible as it was directed at us, as the word of God directly to us. Inge was also surprised one day when Bonhoeffer asked his budding theologians, his pastors in training, whether or not they sang Christmas carols. And he received a somewhat ambivalent response. They weren't quite sure, do they sing Christmas carols? Which tells you something about the spiritual state of theology students in 1930s Germany. But Bonhoeffer responded to this by saying, if you want to be pastors, you must sing carols. If you want to be pastors you must sing carols and so he decided that beginning with the first day of advent his class was going to meet every day at noon and they were going to sing carols together so let me take this as an opportunity to invite you to come back tonight for our children's annual christmas pageant which will take place here at five and will be immediately followed by caroling by candlelight we originally planned to do this outside looks like we're going to be inside but come join us tonight for the pageant and caroling afterwards. But why was Bonhoeffer so insistent that people training for the ministry should sing Christmas carols? Well, it's not because these songs are traditional or beautiful or familiar or nostalgic. The reason why he insisted that they sing carols is because the whole gospel is contained in these songs. And if you don't love Christmas carols, if they don't make your heart sing, Well, then it suggests that you're missing something. You're missing something. So during the next few weeks of Advent, we're going to take a break from our series on the Sermon on the Mount. We'll come back to that in January. But instead, we're going to spend the next few weeks exploring the gospel message that is contained in some of the great carols that we love. And we're going to begin today with Joy to the World that we sang a moment ago, which is based on Psalm 98. Now, the interesting thing is that Joy to the World was never intended to be a Christmas carol. And you could just as easily sing this song in June as you could in December. And that's what makes it a perfect song for Advent. And I'll explain why in a minute. But today I'd like us to consider Joy to the World under three headings. Number one, the cause for joy. Number two, the scope of joy. And number three, the call to joy. The cause for joy, the Lord has come. The scope of joy, far as the curse is found, and the call to joy, repeat the sounding joy. So if you would, let me invite you to open up a Bible to Psalm 98. You'll find our passage printed on page 500 of the Pew Bible. It's also printed in your order of worship. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. This is God's word. It's trustworthy and it's true and it's given to us in love. Please pray with me. Father, we acknowledge that apart from you, these words would remain nothing more than letters on a page And therefore, we pray by your grace that the same Spirit that once inspired these words might illuminate them now for us, so that your word might catch fire and burn within our hearts, leading us to a living encounter with you. We pray in the strong and powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Well, first, the cause for joy. What reason do we have for joy? Well, Joy to the World was written in 1719 by a man named Isaac Watts. He was a little bit of an outsider. He didn't quite fit in. But he was one of the most prolific hymn writers of the 18th century. He wrote such well-known hymns as When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, Jesus Shall Reign Where Ere the Sun, Alas, and did my Savior bleed. But Joy to the World was not only never intended to be a Christmas carol, it was also never intended to be a song at all. He wrote it simply as a poem, and it was included in an anthology of poems, all of which were based on the Psalms of David. And as you can see, when you read Psalm 98, the psalm upon which this carol was based, it doesn't have anything to do with the first coming of Jesus as a helpless and vulnerable child. No, it's all about the second coming of Jesus, not at Christmas time, but at the end of time, But that's what makes it perfect for Advent, because as I said at the beginning of our service today, Advent comes from the Latin word meaning coming. And so this is the time in the church year in which we celebrate the two comings of Jesus. On the one hand, we look back to when Jesus first came as a helpless, vulnerable child, but at the same time, we look forward to when Jesus will come again as the risen and reigning king to restore and renew all things. And so, Watts rightly captures the mood of this entire psalm when he writes, let heaven and nature sing. Because when the Lord comes to finish the work that he started at his first coming, all of heaven and nature will sing. Now, Psalm 98 could be divided into three parts. And you see that in the way in which it's laid out in your Bible as well as in the order of worship. And the first verb in verse 1, verse 4, and verse 7, is first sing, then shout, and then resound. And that word has a place close to my own heart because you may know that as a outflowing of Central's story of renewal, as we've witnessed God bring this old dead church back to new life, we launched a new initiative two years ago called Resound Project. And we have a desire to share the relationships and resources, the people and the ideas that we picked up along the way as God has brought this church bursting back to new life so that we might do our part to strengthen the church for a changing world, so that the gospel might resound, that the message of the gospel might echo and reverberate among the people around us, pointing them to the reality of who God is and who he's revealed himself to be in the person of Jesus. And so this psalm calls us to sing, to shout, and to repeat the sounding joy. But why? The first part of the psalm makes sense. We should sing to the Lord a new song for his salvation because he's come to rescue his people, because he's remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness. That makes sense to us. But it's the end of the psalm that might be a little confusing. Why are we supposed to sing when the psalmist suggests that not just we human beings but all of creation should sing before the Lord for he comes to what? To judge the earth. Now, we usually associate the judgment of God with a negative experience rather than a positive one. Back in 1958, the Oxford professor C.S. Lewis wrote a little book in which he shared some of his reflections on the Psalms in particular, and he comments in this little book that He was confused when he first began reading the Psalms and the prophets because he couldn't understand why they spoke about the judgment of God so positively. And that should strike us as odd. When we recite the creed every week, as we do here at Central, we say, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. But if we're honest, whenever we say those words, it should cause us to tremble a little bit. The last thing that we want God to do is to judge us. So why do the psalmists and the prophets treat the judgment of God so positively? And here in the Psalms, we see that it's not something that should be avoided. Rather, it is cause for universal rejoicing. Well, C.S. Lewis rightly understood that when we hear the word judgment, we should picture an earthly court of justice. But here's the difference between we modern readers of the Bible, and the original ancient authors. See, when we think of an earthly court of justice, we we picture a criminal case, and we imagine that we're the accused, we're the defendant in the dock, and what do we want? We're hoping to get off the hook. We want to get off. But the ancient writers imagined not a criminal case, but a civil case, and they didn't see themselves as the accused, rather they saw themselves as the plaintiff And what were they looking for? Justice. So what we want, we want acquittal or pardon, but what they were looking for was resounding triumph with heavy damages. Now, why do they have such a different conception of God's judgment? Well, it's because they experienced something that many of us never have and perhaps never will. This is how C.S. Lewis sums it up. In most places and times... It's been very difficult for the, quote, small man to get his case heard. The judge and doubtless one or two of his underlings has to be bribed. And if you can't afford to oil his palm, your case will never even reach court. We need not, therefore, be surprised if the Psalms and the prophets are full of the longing for judgment and regard the announcement that judgment is coming as good news Hundreds and thousands of people who have been stripped of all they possess and who have the right entirely on their side will at last be heard. Of course they're not afraid of judgment. They know their case is unanswerable. If only it could be heard. And when God comes to judge, at last it will. So you see, the judgment of God is considered a positive in the Psalms and among the prophets because it means that God is going to bring his justice to bear on this broken world. And so that's why we sing joy to the world because the Lord is come, the Lord has come and the Lord will come again. He's going to come to judge the earth in order to put right everything that once went wrong. And that's why heaven and nature and all of creation will one day sing and shout and resound. So the Lord has come. That's the cause for our joy. But that brings me to my second point, which is the scope of joy. What is the scope of this joy? Well, he comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Now, I told you at the beginning that Isaac Watts was considered a little bit of an outsider during his day. And let me explain why. During the time in which he lived many people believed that it was wrong, it was inappropriate to sing anything other than the Psalms or to sing words that directly came out of the Scriptures. And there are some church traditions that follow that same practice today. But Isaac Watts did not like these songs. He thought that they lacked all feeling They weren't emotionally expressive. And so he hated the bored faces and the monotonous sounds coming out of the people who sung some of these songs. But his dad was a good dad. And he gave him some good advice. He said, don't just complain. Do something about it. And so he did. Isaac Watts started writing songs of his own that were based on the scriptures, to be sure. They were thoroughly biblical But he didn't just take those words and set them to music. No, he tried to emotionally express what those words meant and why they mattered. But the only problem was some people branded him as a heretic as a result. And this song, Joy to the World, is a good example. Now everything in this psalm is based on scripture. It comes from Psalm 98, Psalm 96, and Genesis 3. There's just one little phrase that doesn't come right out of the Bible, and you know what it is? Far as the curse is found. And in fact, some old hymnals scratched that third stanza. They deleted it from the hymn. And they complained that we shouldn't sing that stanza because it sounds very unsalm like. But the whole point is that Isaac Watts didn't want it to sound like a psalm. He wanted to express the meaning of Psalm 98 and of Genesis 3. He wanted to capture the full extent. Of what Jesus has come to do. You see when he wrote these poems based on the Psalms of David, he entitled that anthology, the Psalms of David imitated in the language of the New Testament and applied to the Christian state and worship. In other words, he didn't just take the words of the Old Testament and set them to music, but rather he read the words of the Old Testament in light of Jesus. He read the Old Testament as a Christian, and so he, he, he sought to express the ways in which Jesus fulfills the words of Psalm 98, Psalm 96, Genesis 3, and therefore created an emotionally evocative song that points to the fullness of what Jesus has accomplished for us through his life and his death and his resurrection. You see, it might be true that you won't find those words far as the curse is found in the Bible. But of course, Genesis 3 does speak of a curse. When we human beings first rebelled against God and decided to go our own way, we brought a curse down not only upon ourselves but upon all of creation. Sin leads to sorrow because it alienates us in all of our relationships. Sin alienates us spiritually in our relationship with God. It alienates us socially in our relationships with one another. It alienates us psychologically in our relationship with ourself. And it alienates us physically with the world around us. It even alienates us in terms of our vocation. God gave us human beings good work to do. And even now, on this side of the fall, as we seek to do our work and service to Jesus, sometimes it might be fulfilling, but other times it might be frustrating. And you know why? Because it's all been cursed Genesis 3 describes the curse to us. And in verses 17 and 18, God says to our first parents, Adam and Eve, "Cursed is the ground because of you. Even the ground is now cursed. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. But that's why the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 8 that it's not just we ourselves, but all of creation is groaning and longing to be set free from its bondage. Even the created world is waiting to be freed from the curse. So the question is, what can we do about it? And the answer is nothing. We can't do anything about it. When our first parents rebelled against God, they were banished from the garden. They were banished from the presence of God. And the way back in is not just hard, it's resisted. It's not just difficult, it is impossible. Because Genesis 3 goes on to explain that God places cherubim, spiritual beings, to guard the way back into the garden, into God's presence. And they are armed with a flaming sword. Now think of the imagery of a flaming sword. A fire is bright and beautiful it it gives warmth it's intense but if you try to walk through flames you'll be burned you'll be singed your body will be consumed and a sword of course is a symbol of God's power his authority his justice but if if you try to walk through a sword you're going to be pierced you're going to be cut to pieces and so the, the, the the point is that there's no way back into God's presence except through the flaming sword of his judgment So there's nothing that we can do. But when you realize that backdrop, then you understand that the whole reason why Jesus came was to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, to free us from the curse. So if I were to ask you, what is the scope of the gospel? What is the full scope and extent of the gospel? The answer is that the gospel is as wide as our need. The gospel is as wide as our need and let me explain why that's important. You see, I think many of us have a truncated understanding of the gospel. We might embrace a merely personal gospel or a merely social gospel. See, if you embrace a merely personal gospel, you, you, you would say, well, if you believe in Jesus, God will save your soul and take you to heaven when you die. Now, on the one hand, that merely personal gospel is right in its perspective, that Jesus did die on the cross for our sins that we might be forgiven and reconciled in our relationship with God. But what that merely personal perspective ignores is that God is not merely interested in saving our souls, but our bodies. And he intends not only just to save us, but to save the whole world. His goal is not to whisk us away from this world, but to renew the whole world so that we might live in it with him together forever. So in that merely personal gospel, there's hope for you as the individual, but there's no hope for the world. But a merely social gospel makes the opposite mistake. And a merely social gospel says that Jesus came into the world in order to heal our broken lives, to lift up the poor, to liberate the oppressed, and to establish God's perfect justice. And that perspective is right, that Jesus has come to heal a sin-sick world. And he has come to bring his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. But what that merely social gospel ignores is the personal reality of sin. You yourself need to personally be reconciled in relationship to God. So the one offers hope for the individual but not the world. The other offers hope for the world but not the individual. Back in 1910, the newspaper, the London Times, asked a number of prominent, well-known authors to submit essays in response to this question, what's wrong with the world? So they asked a number of people to submit responses to that question. And G.K. Chesterton submitted the most brief of responses. What's wrong with the world? Chesterton simply writes, Dear sirs, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. But you see, that's right. Before we can address the sins out there in the world, we have to take responsibility for the sins in here. Before we can participate in God's reconciling work out there, we need to be reconciled to God ourselves. So what is the scope of the gospel? Well, we can't be reductionistic about it. The gospel is comprehensive in its scope. It's cosmic in its scope. Because God's goal is not merely to rescue our souls and take us to heaven when we die, but rather he's going to reconcile all things on heaven and in earth. He's going to save our souls and our bodies. He's going to save us as individuals and corporately. He's going to bring about a whole new world where everything that once went wrong will be made right so that we might live in his presence together forever. Now, here's a simple way to sum all of this up using some of the language from the game, 20 Questions. I like to keep it simple for people. What did God create? Big categories. God created people, places, and things. Well, what has sin damaged? People, places, and things. And therefore, what is Jesus going to redeem? You got it? People, places, and things. The gospel is as wide as our need. He's come to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. It's cosmic in its scope. And you see, the point is, I don't think people understand that. I don't think people understand the the true message of Christianity. And I think especially, especially during Advent, we've got an opportunity to share the message of Christianity with the people that God has placed in our lives. There's something magical about Advent. Even people who... The rest of the year show no interest in Christianity might be drawn and attracted to the magic and the wonder of Advent and Christmas. And so here's the opportunity that we have to share a little bit about what it's all about. Years ago, Ashley, my wife, was walking through a Costco and she saw that the store was selling these oversized nativity scenes not the kind that you would put inside your house but the kind that you would put outside in a garden and as she was walking by there was a young boy with his father and and he saw the the oversized shepherds and and Mary and the baby Jesus but he had no idea what any of this was and so he says to his dad who is that and the father explains well that's Jesus, that Christians believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and that's what they celebrate at Christmas, the birth of Jesus. But do you realize that many of the people around us, especially here in New York City, might not know anything more about Christmas than perhaps you know about Diwali or the end of Ramadan or any other holiday that's part of a tradition that you aren't all that familiar with? And so we we have an opportunity, especially during Advent, to share what we know so that other people might discover the message of the gospel. All of our kids are in very secular schools here in New York, and we value and we appreciate that because it gives all of us as a family an opportunity to be salt and to be light. And one of the opportunities has come around every December for the last couple of years where we've been invited to attend the class of our youngest child and to share the message of Christmas. But this is harder to do than you might think, to sum it all up for a four-year-old, a six-year-old, an eight-year-old, and to do so in a pluralistic context where all of these kids and their parents believe radically different things about the world than we do. But this is the way that Ashley and I have often tried to approach it. We would say, well, Christians believe that there is a good God who created this world and everything in it, including you and me. He he made everything, and he made it good. But the problem is that we human beings, we don't love the way that we should. We don't love the God who made us. We don't love one another, and that's the reason. That's the reason for all the sadness and all the tears. That's the reason for all the emptiness and the brokenness the pain and the suffering that we experience in this life. But this God is so good that he didn't give up on us, but rather he chose to come to us. God actually became a human being in the person of Jesus so that he might rescue us because he loves us. And in the language of J.R.R. Tolkien, he's come to make everything sad untrue. Now, we've done that over the last few years, but last year in particular was... Rather striking, because the kids asked us a number of questions, but what was so interesting was not the questions that they asked, which were incredibly good ones, but the response of the teachers. Because the teachers are looking at one another as we're presenting and asking each other, have you ever heard this before? I've never heard this before. This is amazing. And the kids are asking, well, if Jesus is the creator God of the world, the king of the universe, why was he born in a room reserved for animals? Rather than in a palace. And if we don't know the exact date upon which Jesus was born, why do Christians celebrate Christmas in the dead of winter? Rather than some other time? And what's the meaning behind a Christmas tree? What's the symbolism of of a Christmas wreath? And the Teachers were so excited about what they learned that when we ran into one of them at back-to-school night in September, one of the first things she asked was, will you come back again? So we're scheduled to go back in a week or two. But what I want you to see is we have an opportunity. We have a wonderful story to share. He's come to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. So I'd encourage you to pay attention to the people that God has placed in your life during this Advent season who might have no idea what the message of Christmas is all about so the cause of joy is the Lord has come the scope of joy as far as the curse is found and that's why we're called to participate we're called to join in with all of creation in repeating that sounding joy I love the way that Psalm 98 puts it when Jesus returns to finish what he started and to make all things new the sea will roar, the rivers will clap their hands, the hills will sing for joy. This is the moment that not only we, but the fields, the floods, the rocks, hills, and plains have all been waiting for. All of creation is waiting for that moment when it will be set free from the curse. And it's such wonderfully evocative and imaginative language, isn't it? The sea will roar, the rivers will clap their hands, the hills will sing for joy. And when you see that, you realize that, that C.S. Lewis got it right when he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. Do you realize that you could read the opening of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe as an Advent story? See, what's the problem in Narnia? Narnia is under a curse. And what's the curse? It's always winter. But never Christmas. Could you imagine anything worse as a kid? Always winter and never Christmas. And yet Aslan's on the move. And as soon as Aslan lands, the curse is broken. And now it's giving way to a new spring as the ice begins to melt. And you see, that's such a perfect way of describing our present moment. We're living in between the times. We're living in between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. And what that means is that Jesus has already come and he's broken the curse of sin over us, but he has not yet ushered in that new spring. Not yet, not fully, but one day he will. And that's why we sing. We we take this stance. We choose to sing. No more let sin or sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. See, we're called to join into this song. It's an invitation to joy. Even in this in-between time, we're called to sing joy to the world. But here's the the problem. Let's, Let's keep it real. What if you don't feel especially joyful right now? as you look at the hard circumstances of your life, as you reflect back on this past year, especially at this time of year, it might be most difficult for you to experience or to express joy. So how can we sing joy to the world in the midst of what might be the nightmare of your life right now? Well, let me suggest that we can sing joy to the world regardless of our circumstances at all times, as an act of defiant faith. It's an act of defiant faith. You see, the importance of a carol like Joy to the World is that it doesn't paper over the brokenness of this life. Rather, it acknowledges our hurt, our longing, our confusion, our doubt, our despair, our sorrow, our suffering. It doesn't dismiss these things. No, it acknowledges them. And in fact, it acknowledges them in the most realistic of terms. I mean, could you think of a stronger word to describe what it's like to live in this world other than to say, cursed? I mean, if you look back over your life, if you look back over this year, that may very well be exactly how you feel. I feel like I've been cursed. But you see, joy to the world then gives voice to that pain. And the Bible doesn't disregard that pain, it acknowledges it. And yet at the same time, this carol encourages us to sing for joy even in the midst of our sorrow and our suffering because we know how the story ends. He will make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. I heard the singer-songwriter Sandra McCracken once comment on this carol, Joy to the World, and, and she said that joy is a form of protest. And she likened joy to a river. You could imagine a river that's very still on the surface. It may not even seem like the river is flowing, and yet underneath the surface, there's an undercurrent. And with that undercurrent, that that water eventually is going to make its way to the sea. And for the Christian, that's how joy operates. Joy is the undercurrent in our lives. Regardless of what might be happening on the surface, joy will reach its destination. And so we sing now joy to the world as an act of defiant faith. But how do we know that our joy will reach the destination? Well, and the answer is because Jesus has promised to lift the curse from us by becoming a curse for us. Centuries after Adam and Eve, our first parents, rebelled against God in the garden, Jesus also entered a garden. On one fateful night, he walks up a little hill and he enters this small little garden, and while he's praying, He's approached by soldiers who carry with them torches and weapons, flames and swords. And Peter instinctively tries to defend Jesus. He pulls out a sword and accidentally lops off the ear of one of the servants, not even one of the soldiers, one of the servants. But Jesus tells Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup? That the Father has given me. You see, that man in that garden might seem small and insignificant, but that night changed the world. Adam was in a garden, representative of the old humanity, and yet he resisted God's will and brought a curse down upon all of us. But now here's Jesus, the representative of a new humanity, once again in a garden. But now he submits himself fully to God's will. And as a result, he lifts the curse from us. But how does he do it? He willingly goes to the cross and bears the curse away by becoming a curse for us. Paul explains what's happening in Galatians chapter 3. He quotes Deuteronomy and says that anyone who is hung up on a tree is cursed, cut off, forsaken by God. And so Jesus willingly goes to the cross in order to lift that curse by becoming the ultimate cursed one. Do you realize that when he's on the cross, the flaming sword of God's judgment comes down on Jesus? So it'll never come down on you or me. Jesus is consumed by those flames so that we might be restored. Jesus is pierced and cut to pieces so that we might be made whole. Jesus went through that flaming sword in order to throw open the way back into God's presence. And that's why we can sing, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground, because he comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. So it's an invitation to joy. Regardless of what the circumstances of your life might be today, you are invited to sing joy to the world, the Lord has come. So this Advent, this Christmas, choose joy as an act of defiant faith. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that we have great reason, great cause for joy because the Lord is come. The Lord Jesus has come and he will come again to finish what he started And we thank you that the scope of the gospel is as wide as our need, far as the curse is found. And therefore, help us to see the joy that you have promised and to claim it as our own. Help us to sing, to shout, to resound, to to repeat the sounding joy. Because you will make all things new when you come to judge the earth. We ask us, We ask that you would help us to trust these promises, to take them deep into our hearts, and to be transformed and changed by them. In Jesus' name, amen.